Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Today we are joined by Belinda Wheaton. Belinda is a principal research fellow in sport and leisure cultures at the University of Brighton. Belinda has published extensively on informal sports, including articles, multiple edited books, and the recently published The Cultural Politics of Lifestyle Sports. We discuss why lifestyle sports are worthy of academic interest, race in California surf culture, and acts of political resistance. Hi, Belinda. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So do you mind if we start out by discussing some of the key terms and overarching arguments from your book before focusing in on a particular case study? Okay, sounds good. So you've published a number of articles and books on lifestyle sports. What are lifestyle sports and why why are they worthy of studying? Okay, some good questions there. Well, I'm going to start by saying um, what they are sort of broadly. and then I might, I might get into a bit of detail there. Um, I use the term lifestyle sport, uh, but that's, it's had a bit of a history, like most concepts. It, it originated from um, a broad interest in sports that, that didn't fit the kind of traditional competitive team games. A lot of the the people who were working in the, the sports sociology or the sociology of sport field have been really interested in sports like in the in Europe, in what we call football, you would call soccer, and in North America, things like basketball, baseball, and so on, the big mega events like the Olympics. But people, um, and, and there's lots of very important issues around those kind of sports. But what I wanted to do was really turn the lens onto a different type of sports activity that seemed to be growing in significance. The much more informal kinds of sports that people do um, as passions that they can be very committed to. And a kind of particular sort of subgroup of that, if you like, was activities like skateboarding, surfing, windsurfing, um, that, that I thought seemed to be particularly interesting because in many ways they challenged what many of the many of the mainstream assumptions about what sport is like for example they were anti-competitive often certainly at the beginning so in a sense lifestyle sport emerged for me as a way to try and categorize and understand these activities um the the first term that was used was alternative sport and that was used in north america and two of my colleagues becky beale um who's at east bay um, and Bob Reinhardt, who's now out in New Zealand, um, were, were kind of two key figures. And they, I think, rightly talked about skateboarding particularly as being something alternative. But like most things that are alternative, um, if you think about youth cultures, things change very quickly. And what was once alternative, of course, has become very co-opted over time. And so that's gone a bit out of fashion as, as a label. Um Extreme came very quickly after it, um, but a lot of people who are involved in these activities, as well as people studying them, had a problem with extreme 
because it seemed to be a very market-driven, media-driven label. You know, the X Games, which was, of course, was the Extreme Games initially, had a big role in in promoting that. And I, I actually had an undergraduate student who did a, um, a like a, a research project. Oh, God, a good 10, 10, 15 years ago now. And she spoke to a whole bunch of people involved in these kind of sports, whether it's in the media or as athletes and so on. And they all hated extreme sport. I say that's a complete exaggeration. But, you know, it, it was it was one of it, they it was the label that they most disliked. Um, so and I also think it has other sort of connotations. So for me, lifestyle sport was, I guess, an alternative to signal that there might be something different about these kinds of activities, um, but that these other labels didn't really encapsulate. Um, and for me, uh, in, in my book in um, that I edited, um, Understanding Lifestyle Sport, I kind of came up with 10 or so different characteristics that helped define them. Um, I, I, won't, I won't go through them all because I, I think it'll be, if your people are interested, they, they can read up on it. Yeah, but, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so it's not like one thing. It's a set of defining features. And also it's really, I just need to add that it's very much a continuum. I wouldn't want anyone to think that lifestyle sport is like some bounded thing that's separate from mainstream sport or separate from any other particular um, categorization. There is definitely overlap. And these things are shifting and changing all the time. But certainly participants in sports like skateboarding and snowboarding often define it as a lifestyle that that became very apparent for my own ethnographic research in, in windsurfing and then looking at other activities. And I do think that as a lifestyle practice, it's, it's really quite, um, the lifestyle aspect is, is, is an important part of, of the, the cultures of these sports. So, um, a kind of rambling way around the first part, um, why are they worthy of studying is, is kind of linked to, to what I've just said that, you know, I think one of the key things about these activities is that people engage with them in a particular way. They tend to um, develop a, a very strong lifestyle and particularly identity through them. And I think that these kinds of sports are very characteristic of some of the shifts that, that we can see in wider in wider society and culture. And that's probably one of the reasons why they're important because they're representative of you like of the of the sporting zeitgeist if you like of the the 21st century it's, it's telling us about where we might be going and actually interestingly the australian sport commission brought out a report pretty recently where they tried to identify the kind of mega trends in in sport for the next 30 years and they really look at the decline in participation in traditional sports and the rise in in what they they use the term lifestyle sport actually okay so that's kind of it um, you know interesting from from what I can tell, you know, participation is really increasing in lots of different countries. I mean, not just North America and Western Europe, but increasingly in other pockets around the world. Asia, there's a lot of interest, certainly via the media, and I think that's starting to, to impact on participation. Um, I think the Asian X Games are, are pretty popular. Um, so in terms of participation it's also a trend that that we we need to start taking note of as well as the kind of underground scene aspects as well so the other part of your book title is cultural politics um, and people often don't connect leisure and politics so i was wondering what you mean by cultural politics and then also how it relates to leisure oh goodness okay well <laughs> Uh, you know, we're back to we're back to the conceptual m m muddiness of um, sociology. I mean, look, cultural politics, I think, is a really vague term. 
Um, and it really does have a range of different meanings. So, you know, in some ways, I just, it's important to say what I mean by it. And it may not be what other people mean by it. But I think it's trying to show that, you know, there is something political in everyday life, that the cultural realm is important, um, that it encompasses work theoretically across, I suppose, a range of humanities and social science disciplines, traditionally. Um, and it embraces, I suppose, the studies of cultural identities um, at all levels. So, you know, from the local to the transnational. But it to do so, we have to understand the political problems and processes that the impact on, I guess, people's agency and people's identity. So we can't divorce what we do from um, broader sort of structural kind of questions and political questions. So I, su I suppose that's broadly what it what it means to me. In terms of leisure, um, you know, leisure is uh, is a really broad field of study that um, can sometimes be quite a theoretical in the same way that understanding uh, let's say a lifestyle from um, a market research perspective is um, sees it very much as a cult as a, as a choice as something that people choose to do and for me it's very important to think of leisure as a site of identity construction but one that is always underpinned by a range of um, constraints economic cultural social political and that have historical roots um, so my sort of my trajectory into leisure studies is really via, I suppose, what you, in, in the UK we've seen as a kind of critical sociology of sport, but also um, cultural studies. The two have been quite linked in, in the UK. So for me, leisure coming from that sort of background is, is always something that is about political questions, is always around cultural contestation and about how power is both reproduced and, and how it's challenged. So I, I suppose for th those, are the, those are the crux for me, thinking about leisure um, and, and sport. That leads into my next question. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about the book was you made uh, an explicit point of focusing on the voices that are often marginalized or silenced. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your motivation for doing so, and then were there any barriers to taking that approach? Well, I think if we take a... a um, uh, an approach that does focus on cultural politics, then it it means that we do need to think about the different aspects of identity, and we need to think about who's included and who's excluded. I suppose that's a a, a kind of simple way of looking at it. And in the research that has been done in sport and leisure, there are some very, very good nuanced um, textual readings that are often able to look at um, the the marginalised and silenced, but that can be really hard to do, and the intersections of those, but it, that can be really hard to do when you're doing more ethnographic and qualitative research. So I suppose I wanted to take the opportunity in, in this particular book to really delve into some of, just some of those experiences that we hadn't heard about before. Um, women is clearly still a, a marginalised group within um, most sports cultures, but lifestyles and lifestyle sport cultures as well. But there is definitely a, a load of emerging research. So I was less interested in that. And I wanted to, to try and find these kind of pockets, I suppose, that, that, that interested me. So I focused a bit on um, 
well, race was quite a large part. I mean, these sports are overwhelmingly white and yet it's not something that tends to be commented on. And then I wanted to look at areas like South Africa where the, the experiences might be very different or they may have very different meanings. So really thinking about the global and the local and and what the impact was in terms of people's identities. So I look a bit at South Africa, I look a, um, a bit at uh, women, but also at older participants. And of course, that's one of the you know sort of key trends, I guess, is that these sports are being taken up more and more by older people, by women. Um, to, to look at um, people of colour, but the case study that I really focused on was um, African-American um, surfers in, in California. Um, so that so my motivation was, I guess, both theoretical, but also um, I sent, I guess the research group that I'm involved with has a very strong commitment to issues of equality and social justice. So maybe in some ways they were natural questions to be asking. And the kind of questions my colleagues will be asking me, you know, why should we be interested in, in these surface if they're a bunch of privileged, largely young men? And I think that's a good question. So um, so those kinds of questions have always framed the way I've looked at these things. OK, so you mentioned that you uh, you looked at the experience of African-Americans in surfing culture in California. And uh, in the book, you also have a chapter on parkour and also a chapter on lifestyle sport in South Africa. But for the sake of time, I was hoping we could focus in on the surfing, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. That'd be good. Um, so in the book, uh, you present surfing as one of, if not the whitest of all the leisure sports. So what were some of the key historical factors or trends? And I know you can't list them all now, but just a few of them that led to surfing becoming so white. Um, OK, so so in a sense here, I'm really drawing on other people's work because I'm I'm not really a historian. I mean, history's of course, got to underpin everything, but I, I've drawn on other historians' work. So I, I need to say that. So it's not like pretending I've been doing the archive work here. Yeah. But, <laughs> I really, you know, I, I suppose I just brought this stuff together to help frame some of the questions I was interested in. So in terms of North American surfing and, and really the impact in Europe as well, um, I, I argue that actually surfing became white in the 20th century. So um, before that, there were, there were um, sightings of people surfing and people surfing on all sorts of things, you know, whether they were, um, you know, logs or whatever around probably right around the world where, where there's warm water and certainly in parts of Polynesia and certainly parts of Africa. But um, it kind of got reconstructed as a white sport in, in the USA in the 20th century. And, and that's what I find kind of quite fascinating. Um, and and in, in the process, there are a range of important historical um, things that have driven that process. So um, one of them was the way in which in, I think it was about the 1920s onwards, the Californian beach was actually really um, constructed as a white utopia. And that was quite an active thing um, that in terms of tourism, they wanted it to be associated with the, with the Mediterranean, which was seen to be kind of very pure and European and so on. And through that process, um, the, the the kind of whole cult the the I feel like the cultural geography that that underpins all of this um had a really key role and then alongside that you had of course the Hollywood Beach movies um and they constructed surfing in particular ways and the beach was a very much a white space that was a I guess a, a place that was safe for um for for white beach goers to go to and so these are important things. The media has played a big role. But by far, I think probably the most important thing that factor that these other factors need to be seen in relation to was really the, the politics of um, 
race and segregation in the USA and the way in which through that, which I'm sure your your readers are, are very familiar with and probably more so than I was when I started this, is the way in which um, the California beach suburbs became so racialized from a spatial perspective. So the you know the, the black communities that had existed along the coast were really actively um, um, excluded and you know they tried to get rid of them so that eventually these places like Santa Monica and Malibu and all these beach suburbs became incredibly white and and eventually became very wealthy um, and so I found that very very fascinating and um, the rose of uh, the work of um, Jefferson and, and Rose Jefferson who studies I think out in Santa Barbara is really interesting she's looking at an area of Santa uh, Monica beaches and there's one beach there called the Inkwell which was the, the beach where Which is interesting so that so there's a kind of continuity to that um yeah so th those are i mean it's you know it's a bit very complex picture and how segregation um continues even after you know officially uh it you know de facto segregation continues and, and the impact that still has uh and the surfers i spoke to particularly who were surfing in the 60s and 70s i mean just talked about how difficult it was to just be in these very, very white spaces and to, to be to feel like a, a complete outsider. So one of the things that really fascinated me about this is that I've talked to people who participate in leisure sports, in particular rock climbing, and I've I've mentioned how the demographics tend to be very white, and I usually get a response along the lines of, you know, we're a welcoming community and we'd love to have more a more diverse group of climbers. And that basically redirects any of the blame away from the group or the practice itself. Um, so I was I was wondering what were some of the social constraints that you heard about when you were interviewing African American surfers about their experience? Yeah, so I th I think that's it, your experiences with the climbers is really similar to the surfers. Um, that um, that there's there's just a lack that surfers themselves don't understand it. They'll say, you know, we're a really welcoming lot. We you know we believe in the big brotherhood. There's no race here. There's no gender. Everyone's a surfer, and I mean, for, for some people, they can transcend some of the, the problems and that can be the case. But for others, these structural, cultural, historical constraints are, are huge. And I'll, I'll come on, on to a couple of those. But, you know, one one of the really enlightened guys that I spoke to talked about the fact that that all open outdoor sort of nature pursuits in North America are dominated by white people. Um, and for him, getting more people to surf is not actually about them loving surfing. It's just for them to just say, okay, I can be in this place. I can do this if I want to, that, that we, we can be in, in these places. And I think it's, it's really hard, for, you know, what it, you know, for me, it took a long time to really realize that the depth of, of, um, historical, um, roots, I suppose, that, 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 in, that fix people to these particular ways of being in the world. Um, I mean, one of the things that came up was, the two myths one is about um slaves in the boats and that's you know has caused fear through the generations so um black kids aren't taught to swim because their grandparents were frightened of the water and you know people talked to me about this and they said they knew, know it's ridiculous but their their families don't swim because they're still frightened of the water and it's the same with places in nature um because that's where lynchings took place that 
um, you get a kind of generational fear of nature and of being out of urban places. And it kind of, it lives on. Um, you know, one person described to me how, you know, her grandmother was fine, had gone to the beach, but then it became a place of fear. And so she wouldn't let her kids go there. And then her kids wouldn't let her grandkids and, and so on. It just kind of continues. Um, but in terms of the, the kinds of things that came through in my interviews, um, certainly um, a lot of people talked about the difficulties of doing something that your family and peer group don't do. So very few had come from families who surf or, um, or, or went to the beach. And actually just getting to the beach itself was a, was a really big step. And, you know, one of the guys I spoke to, he lives, you know, three kilometers from the beach. And he said, so many of the kids who live in my community have never even been to the beach. And that's, that isn't about um, economic that's not an economic question it's not about the cost of getting to the beach it's about it's just not something they do I mean I use Bourdieu as a way to, to sort of discuss that in terms of you know people's habitus but certainly that that is one sort of set of issues and then being, being called names um, both by the white community and the black community so they were called things like um, Oreo cookies white boy wannabes so uh, black youth define surfing as a white thing and so if a if a black kid wanted to surf, then they were often ostracized by their um, black school friends or black friends. Right. So that that was, is quite an issue. Um, there are, of course, you know, issues that, that are difficult for anyone who doesn't have wealth. And, and the beaches, you have to predominantly use a car to get there. And there's the cost of the equipment. But that, that tended not to be um, a major sort of issue. It was more... Um, being in a space where you're dominated by um, white people and, and kind of feeling an outsider. There, there were certainly people who managed to transcend that. So uh, what I've documented, I don't think is necessarily um, the, uh, I mean, I think it's a probably a very complex set of questions, um, a, a complex set of experiences, sorry, that, that, that impact people in different ways, depending on, you know, where they live and, um, their community and and all and who how they've got exposed to the beach and, and a whole range of things but certainly for some people that was a, a really uh, significant um issue and um the media certainly perpetuates it the surf media you know it's very focused on on whiteness um there's a kind of post-colonial mentality where um black are seen as the other and sort of seen as more primitive and um they tend to be the native in the the kind of faraway land and exoticized and so on and that really angered um some of the people i spoke to they felt they felt that they they didn't have a, a representation in the surfing media um did, did you get a sense of why it was it it seems to be so difficult for uh the white surfers to acknowledge the potential for race mattering did you have any of those conversations or uh, was that is not much of a focus um i no, I, I didn't talk so much to the to the white surfers about it. I did talk to some of the black surfers who who didn't see um, um, the surfing culture as being so racist. So there were certainly some who saw it as as very inclusive, but equally they would then recount actually the way they were treated as different. So 
you know, I mean, it's there's certainly been an improvement, you know, in the in the 1950s or 60s, there, there would be awful things like, you know, go home nigger written on their car in, in surf wax and tires being slit and some, you know, I, I had some really awful stories recounted to me. And that's certainly shifted now to the, the if you like, the more kind of cultural racisms of the of the, of the 21st century. Um, but you know the looks, the stares, the 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 type of comments that that make someone feel a little bit out of place. Um, I, I I use um, the work of Puar, who talks about space invaders. The idea that um, there are some you know spa- that spaces aren't blank and open, but they there are always some that are tacitly you know designed to be the occupants, and that's usually white um, usually white male bodies, and the bodies stand out. You know. Um, when they're not of of that kind of um, when they don't fit it in that way, and that kind of confirms the whiteness. So, for for some, you know, they could transcend these issues and and had lots of, um, you know, really enjoyed the surfing and didn't feel that that there was any racism. But for others, they were very conscious that they were always being marked as different. They were always being marked as the black surfer that that they couldn't be, um, that the surfer identity was marked as a white identity. Um, and for some people, that was that caused great conflict for others it didn't you know there was a like I say a range of um experiences and I I think also for some who are really good surfers they they denied the racism because they needed to 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 like preserve their own um belief in this culture I mean surfers have very, have very much seen themselves as wanting something different and better than the American mainstream that having a more cosmopolitan outlook look on life and um that isn't necessarily the case you know they're very contradictory in lots of things they do um but they do they do want to be seen like that and want to feel they're like that and so it's difficult then isn't it to to sort of be someone who challenges that when you want to be part of that that leads into the uh, next question i wanted to ask so the final chapter of your book is titled challenging exclusion um so perhaps to conclude we could talk a little bit about the possibility of resistance and change um so what were some of the challenges you saw Okay, so um, I think what we're seeing in, in, in this very small snapshot of, of surfing culture is a set of forms of cultural resistance. So these are the things that small groups of people are doing that are, ch- are, are, are if you like, local challenges, and whether, which I'll give you some examples of. The, the broader question is whether they actually are going to have an impact on the, on the broader situation. You know, like most cultural challenges is, is really difficult, is a difficult one. Um, so they, they, I mean, the surf media was certainly seen as a target. So for some people, it was, um, just posting on the web, rewriting the kind of histories. So there was, there was a very famous black surfer, Nick Gabaldon, who was in Malibu in the, I think it was the twenties and thirties, um, who's completely written out of the history books. So they want to write his history back in. Um, he, he was around at the time of those beach movies, the, the Hollywood beach movies, and no one even kind of. You know, he never he, his face was never shown. So that's really important. Other people are making films. Um, there's a the documentary that um, came out, which I've completely forgotten. Whitewash. Um, some you know some of the black surfers are very involved with. So these are ways in which they can actually challenge the the um, orthodoxies about the history of black surfers being involved with with surfing. And I think that's important. But they'll do other things like. Um, just get a bunch of kids together who, who have never had the opportunity to go to the beach and just take them to the beach, um, have beach festivals. They, they have black, what they call blackouts, <laughs> where they just will turn up en masse. And when I say en masse, it's still not a lot of people, but 
it's a small group and actually just feel comfortable to take over a, a white space. Um, so just providing that support and, and just getting people used to the fact that the beach is a, a good place to be. Um, sometimes the, there are legal challenges, you know, um, depending on um, um, where there have been beaches where there's been particular forms of exclusion and, and, that, and that does still happen. Um, you know, um, people who are wanting to protect their property and so on can ban access to the beach when really they don't have the um, well, they shouldn't be doing that. So, so some of the black surfers have worked with environmentalists as well to try and um, so different allies to try and you know challenge challenge things. So, in these um, cases that you're talking about, it seems like the black surfers themselves see their actions as political rather than, uh, as you see in maybe other cases where the academic is reading actions as political, but the people themselves don't see it as such. Yeah, that's a good point, and I would say it varies. So for some people, this was definitely a political action, and they would they they said that. So you know, they would say this is this is a political problem, and, and this is what we're trying to to deal with. Um, and some were political activists in other spheres. Others they they didn't see it as political at all. I mean, they they just saw it as trying to um, you know just provide opportunity, or even or even not, they just wanted to be able to do their thing. So there was definitely a range. But for those I, you know, I found very interesting that there was a small pocket of people who really did see this as, as a very political thing and that linked, it wasn't uh, that it linked to a bigger, you know, bigger problem. They saw surfing as part of the, the broader sort of black political movement and and about the black diaspora of surfers around the world kind of linking together. That, and that would be certainly their aim. Um, and also to enlighten um, people who don't know what's going on to enlighten people who don't understand the, the cultural politics of surfing and and how you know if, if you like the, the stuff I talked about before something that was once black became white rather than I guess the other way around um, and for this is for black people as much as white people that you know that these myths like black people can't swim are still held strongly in the black community so it's it's challenging lots of people's views and ideologies well, that, that seems like a great place to end. Thank you for joining us and thank you for talking about your research. Pleasure. Thank you.